Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Termination for medical reasons, otherwise known as TFMR, is taboo when it comes to baby loss. But there are more terminations than there are stillbirths. Yet because of political and religious debates around the topic of abortion, it's too confronting to talk about, which leaves mothers who have had to walk this path more isolated and alone despite grieving their baby and their family. Today, I chat to Beck, who is incredibly vulnerable and open in sharing her experiences with a genetic disorder that has led her to a journey of various losses and ultimately made her make difficult decisions that no mother wants to make. So Beck, can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, so I live in regional Queensland um, and I'm a mum to a nearly three-year-old little girl named Ella. Um, she'll be three in March. Um, and we just I live with her and my husband. Um, I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach predominantly music. Um, my first kind of love when I was at school was um, voice and singing and being in musicals and all that sort of stuff. Um, And yeah, that led me to teaching at a local high school. Um, I also teach English and Humanities. Um, And yeah, I kind of just cruise along, I suppose. Um, In terms of what's brought me to talk to you today, I have, um, after having Ella, experienced a couple of different types of pregnancy loss. Um, We had a missed miscarriage um, at around 10 weeks in November of 2021, um, followed by a chemical or early miscarriage around six weeks um the following january and then in october of 2022 we unfortunately lost our son liam due to a termination for medical reasons wow and that's that is a lot in a very short time frame yes it's been very much back-to-back crappy luck (laughs) to say the least and the fact you can smile right now like it don't does that depend on the day <laughs> yeah uh, absolutely absolutely <laughs> for sure and I um you know to be honest the last couple of days have been crappy ones they've been ones where like if we it's probably worked out well that we were always planning to meet today because had you had this conversation with me two days ago and it would have been completely different it's up and down yeah. every day as it would be for all mums that are going through this sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah definitely So I want to know how your journey was with Ella's sort of pregnancy, birth, postpartum. Yeah. How was all of that? For sure. Um, Really great, actually. I am super, super grateful that I have that memory to look back on. Um, Big part of our story is that I am a um, carrier of an X-linked genetic disorder. Um, And so every pregnancy pregnancy for me is filled with the risk of something going wrong um 
And so for Ella's pregnancy, we got pregnant really quite easily. Um, I think we got married in September of 2018 and pretty much early 2019, I was bugging my husband to kind of be like, all right, next thing, ready for a baby now. And so, um, yeah, we were really lucky. Maybe our second month trying, we got the positive stick and I was just so excited. So, so looking forward to it. But immediately there's this trepidation because we don't know what's going to happen. No pregnancy that we ever have is like 100% able to be exciting, I suppose. We're always kind of under a cloud of uncertainty. So So um, you knew this going into Ella's pregnancy? Yes. Yes. I've been lucky in a way um, that I've known about my carrier status since I was a young teenager, 12, 13 years old maybe. Um, So it's kind of always been a far away thing that I've known about. You know, they Mm -hmm. counselled me when I was younger with my parents and then I remember when I finished school and went to uni, before I took off to university, my parents took me down to the genetic counsellors in Newcastle and they counselled me again now as like a young adult um, on what it was and, you know, why it was important that I knew about it. And all I kind of took away from it at the time was like, you know, you're going to uni, if you have an accident, make sure you call us type thing. Like you need to be on track and knowing your dates and being aware because this is just something that is, you know, a thing you have to deal with. So that was fine. Um, And then later when my husband and I got engaged, we had more genetic counselling as a couple um, with kind of looking forward to family planning. So I've known about it well before Ella's pregnancy. Um, But yeah, back to the original question. She, what we usually do is we um, have our NIPT test, the NIP test at 10, 11 weeks. Um, And we really use that for the gender. Because it's an X-linked condition, it's usually the way that girls can be just carriers, like myself, um, Mm -hmm. but otherwise unaffected, and boys are the ones that are usually affected. So we use the NIP test to um, figure out gender and decide whether we need to do further invasive testing or whether we can just carry on as normal. So I suppose the first sort of 10 weeks of her pregnancy um, was very anxious. Um, We wouldn't let ourselves get too ahead of anything, too attached. I wouldn't let myself go and buy any like baby clothes or anything exciting until we got, you know, the results back. Um, but yeah, at you know the eleven week mark, we got the call from the obstetrician. It's a girl, and we were just. I remember we were in the um, the drive through at KFC, getting like some Friday night like takeout dinner, and we were super disappointed because our obstetrician hadn't called by five pm, and we were like, oh well, they'll close. Like we're not going to know anything over the weekend now, so we're going to have to wait, and then. This is just the beginning of when I like fell in love with him because he um he literally called at that like six thirty seven p.m. and said no you guys don't need to wait it out and sweat it out over the weekend I'm here and I'm calling you with your results and it's a girl and it's all low risk and we just were like this is it we're having a baby now like nothing can go wrong um wow and luckily <laughs> nothing did go wrong um we were very naive in thinking that but we went to the twelve week scan and all the way through the rest um it was textbook i you know and the stereotypical kind of um sad pregnant lady in the first trimester but um once that lifts i just loved being pregnant um 
it was yeah dream come true to be honest and we flew right through um with the pregnancy uh her birth was a bit of a story i suppose i don't look back on it badly um or negatively mm-hmm. i actually think that it was a really lovely experience but um we were induced she was not budging herself um and yeah just went through an induction labor that involved um uh, forceps and episiotomy which i was mm-hmm. totally fine with i literally i just my only kind of plan was that if i could avoid surgery I really wanted to and so we worked really hard to try and make it happen um Mm -hmm. I think it was pretty close at times um we started to both get a bit um tired and a bit distressed so it was kind of like uh we're gonna try this and if this doesn't work well then we're gonna toddle down the um down the hallway to theater but uh, we managed to get her out using that mode so that was fine um no severe tearing uh, no, no, like just other than the peasy on me, um, it was fine, wow. stitched up, all good. Um, that mm-hmm. was fair enough. Um, however, we got home and a week later, yeah, it's pretty much bang on a week later because we'd taken Ella to the GP for like a week's checkup. And that night, I um just kind of lay down on the couch as you do when you've got a tear or a peasy on me stitches. You're like every move you do is really quite um ginger. I lay down on the couch and just this like sharp pulling pain um, hit me and I was like oh my god and I'm like no like sti- they you read about the stitches coming apart and whatever else and they always say mm. that won't happen it doesn't happen but I'm like man it hurt but anyway I put it out of my head and I was like spine got through a really uncomfortable night with Ella and I just said to my husband the next morning like you're gonna have to help me today because something is wrong and um, he had a look for me and he was just like, you need mm-hmm. to call the obstetrician. Like, this is not right. And, yeah, we got there later that afternoon. It turns out that my stitches had completely come apart. They'd failed oh. and fallen out and the wound had reopened. So I had to go back into hospital um, for surgery to fix it and was readmitted for another sort of four or five days just to clear any... Four or five days? Yeah, yeah. Um, my OB... He kind, of, he kind of really was very, very thorough. Um, he mm. was pretty freaked out at the fact that that had happened. We kind of reckoned that maybe um, there are those dissolvable stitches that most people use these days, but some people can reject, reject them. Like mm-hmm. as they start to dissolve and stuff, your body just like, nah, and they just kind of like fail. Um, and so he was really worried about like infection and, and having some sort of issue happening. And as you can imagine with that sort of wound, as is the problem with so many women that have tears of varying degrees and pelvic health issues that come afterwards that, um, you know, he was really worried for us potentially being, having any kind of like complications for another pregnancy or future um, possibility of doing that. So yeah, he admitted me for quite a few days back on the mat ward, which was fantastic because we went back in with the baby um, she was put in as a border baby <laughs> with me as the patient. Um, and so I got all the like lactation consultant and midwife help all over again while also trying to, yeah. So the second recovery was harder. The original episiotomy, really not as bad as what I thought it would be. It was quite wow. like, I think it in some ways would actually have been more comfortable than like a, a tear necessarily because, mm-hmm. you know, a third or fourth degree tear as opposed to an episiotomy that has been purposely and 
cut and managed, I suppose, uh, ended up being better for me, but not so much when it had to be redone. <laughs> that yeah. was it. Was pretty painful. Um, yeah, and it sucked. And they kept me in for the four or five days just on some IV antibiotics. They just pumped me full of antibiotics for a good couple of weeks because they did not want me to have any sort of further issues there. And I didn't. They took great care of me. Um, but yeah, it was really hard being with a newborn baby second week back in the hospital, away from home, um, smack in the middle of the original COVID hysteria. So mm. I was freaking out, <laughs> as any mums were at that time. Um, but yeah, we took care of it. And yeah, all good now, um, for mm. sure. I've seen that you've been doing a lot of work with like um, uh, pelvic um, floor health and physio and stuff. And yeah, absolutely advocate for that as well. I saw a fantastic um, pelvic health specialist um, physio through my obstetrician's office for the months following and they helped me with all oh, sorts of stuff. That is so refreshing to hear. Mm. And scar, so like private... scar therapy as well, like ma- yeah. making sure that all of that was fixed so yeah. that like it's a sensitive area. Like if I want to mm-hmm. be able to, number one, like enjoy time with my husband ever again but also ever have kids again, this needs to be treated with appropriate care. So I was straight up like, absolutely directed to the right people for that so i yeah 10 out of 10 100 advocate that everybody should have access to that and it should not be so difficult to yeah. access because it's not cheap i love that that's also so refreshing to hear because quite often i'm hearing the opposite so it's nice to hear that sometimes it's working i want to know more about this genetic disorder so you called it an x-link genetic disorder mm-hmm. so what is this and how did you sort of come to know about it? So X-linked um, obviously means it comes maternal side. So um, right. yeah, so if I am not much up on the genetis, genetics and like, you know, I didn't do biology mm. at high school, but everybody has two sets of chromosomes, you know, and women have two X's, men X and Y. And so the X chromosome comes from your, from women. So it's a maternal Um, line that carries this gene I suppose Mm. Um, so obviously it was passed down from my mother my mother etc 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 I have no idea if Ella is a carrier Uh, that will be something in the future I'll cross that bridge when we come to it Um, but the way I found out about it is I suppose it starts with my parents and them trying to grow their family you know 35 years ago they, I suppose my mum was probably one of the first women in our family that was offered the testing and the level of uh, medical research, I suppose, to be able to really manage it. Um, it's called BFLS for short. The full name is like Borges and Forsman Lemon Syndrome. It's like, I'm sure I'm not even pronouncing it right. Sounds German to me. I'm sure it's named after some dude that discovered it. I'm not sure. <laughs> to be honest but we just call it bfls and um i actually did some research on exactly what it is bfls is characterized mainly by intellectual disability um but it can be a varying um you know amounts so there is no way to tell how severely affected a child would be um but it also comes with like obesity and seizures um failures of the failure of the testes in males as well so men with bfls Mm -hmm. are generally infertile 
Um, and then just some pretty distinctive facial features and different things with the body. Um, sometimes they have just random physical anomalies and issues that cause them a fair amount of trouble through their life. Um, but they can live. So um, I suppose mm -hmm. arts of my mum's, etc. finally went to doctors and just tried to find out what was happening. And they figured out that's what it was. And so, so it only gets passed, like only affects males. Yes. In that way. I think the research says that it, it can affect women. They cannot tell you for sure that it will not. But in our family, we have had absolutely no showing of that whatsoever. Um, it's usually just come across as a carrier status. My mum was probably one of the first people that was, a, was able to access what they call CVS testing, um, chronic villus sampling, um, back in the early 90s. And, um, yeah, so they did that for their pregnancies. Um, they lost two babies to the condition before they had me. I'm the oldest um, of three children. Um, and so they had two uh, difficult decisions to make before me. I believe there was also a miscarriage in there. Um, and then they had myself and then two healthy younger brothers as well. Wow. Yeah. So it's definitely... Not to say that you can't have completely healthy, unaffected children. The chance is one in four. So like they say to you, 25%. You can have a completely healthy girl, completely healthy boy, or you can have a carrier girl or affected boy. And it just depends on what egg met the sperm. Like it wow. literally is chance. Um, yeah. yeah. So because they knew that, then obviously um, they wanted to test me. I think when I got to around maybe 11, 12 years old, I'm not sure. Mum will probably listen to this and be like, no, you were X, Y, Z. But around that age, <laughs> around that age, um, the doctors that were doing the research on the particular condition and on our family contacted mum and dad and wanted to see me and wanted to see mum to see if they could, like, um, see any physical, like, expressivity of it at all. Um, carriers sometimes have been known to show, like, very minute physical attributes but aren't actually affected as far as the intellectual disability etc goes um and so they wanted to see me um and i don't think it necessarily gave them much information because i didn't really show much of anything um but eventually they mum just suggested did, did they want to take some blood so they took my blood and um yeah managed to figure out that i was a carrier as well so my wow. parents didn't keep that from me at the time i was switched on <laughs> enough and had been to see the specialists i would have asked questions so they just were honest with me from the beginning. How did that impact your thoughts and feelings about becoming a mother? I suppose it just always puts this cloud, like I kind of mentioned before, of just uncertainty over things. I knew I could be a mum because obviously I'm here and my younger brothers are here. Um, and, you know, albeit questionable at times, they're perfectly healthy. <laughs> <laughs> like they're 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 wonderful um you can have healthy baby boys baby girls um you can choose to have a baby with bfls and they could live um it's just as to what you know severity the um mm -hmm. condition will affect them so i knew i could have a family but it certainly put a cloud over what it would look like and it definitely also for anybody that knows that they carry something um, it just puts an extra question as well when you're 
moving into a relationship, I suppose. Um, when I met my husband, I he is probably like my first and only like serious relationship I've been in in my life. But when things started to get serious with him, I remember having lunch with my mum and just being like, what do I say? Like, when do you tell somebody about this? Like, we'd been dating maybe three months and we were still in that, like, honeymoon kind of thing. But it really did feel like it was going to be something very serious. And I was just like, do you say something now? Or Mm. do you leave it until, like, later? Like, is it too much to say to a guy that you've been seeing for three or four months? Like, hey, so if we have kids, um, blah, blah, blah. Or do you leave it until later? But, like... Will he want to know if it's, you know, say pulls out a ring and then you decide to say something? Like, that's a big deal. So it always kind of made it a bit difficult. Um, And I know of people that find it really tricky, like as a bit of a barrier to relationships Mm. because they really feel like um, people won't want to go there. Like it'll be, Mm. yeah, a bit of a roadblock. Um, I was just lucky that I did... I did have the conversation and my husband was immediately supportive and it's just never been a problem. We've always been on the same page um, with everything regarding it. And so I was lucky in that manner, but it's scary when you're moving into that aspect of your life, I suppose. Yeah. And that sucks just kind of um, always approaching pregnancy with a feeling of, I don't want to say dread, but, there's like this impending doom particularly now (laughs) of course that's finally happened yeah so you mentioned you had a missed miscarriage and a Mm. chemical miscarriage yes just for those who are unaware can you sort of define the difference in the two and your experience in the two yeah for sure so firstly the missed miscarriage missed miscarriages occur when um unfortunately the um embryo or the or the fetus um stops developing in the womb but your body doesn't recognize it so for example i went for a dating scan at about seven or eight weeks and there was a heartbeat everything looked okay um i have to admit i was measuring behind and at the time i knew there was a problem in my heart um my HCG levels when I first went to the doctor and got bloods taken were on the lower side but they just said to me you could just ovulate it later than normal like whatever don't stress Mm. about it so you know we just went on our way but then I think yeah I was meant to be around eight weeks and I was measuring six and something like almost two weeks behind and having had a baby before I also was like it's not meant to happen but they said the same thing oh if the doctor thought your dates might be off don't stress about it go anyway So we did, and it was when we went to see our obstetrician for our booking appointment. I should have been around 10 weeks. Um, We did a whole big, long 45-minute, like, chat. Hey, how are you? Caught up on the last sort of 18 months, two years since we last saw him. Um, You know, talked about all the things and the plans that we would have. And then um, he does the, like, jump up on the bed and we'll we'll have a look at this kid um, at the end of the appointment. And there was just nothing there. Um, No heartbeat. Um, you could see baby he was where he was supposed to be or she was we never found out gender but um there was no heartbeat and we and we knew like we've seen uh 
like ultrasounds before many times and so I could see the screen um, yeah the spot where there should have been flickering just there was none it was just silence so um, yeah unfortunately that happened um, I was given a couple of different options as to how to manage it so you can um, kind of just let it nature take its course and, and sit and wait for a little bit um, you can kind of manage it medically so they can give you medication. I'm just trying to think. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, whatever it is, something, misoprostol or something that people are given mm. and, it, and it brings it home. You can take it home, yeah. take it, be in your own spot, or you can take care of it surgically with a DNC. Um, and so we... We booked in tentatively a DNC for the following week. So we saw him on like a Friday and found this out. And we were like, next Friday, we'll tentatively book him for surgery and we'll just wait and see what the week brings. But I went through that weekend and I still had all of my symptoms. I was vomiting, I was tired, I was cranky. And just every time I had to run to the toilet bowl, it was just a reminder. I just couldn't do it. So I rang his office first thing Monday and said to the ladies, please, when he gets there, can you get him to ring me? Like, he needs to try and bring me forward. Like, I can't do this. Mm. Um, and <laughs> I felt really bad. He rang me back and, like, said, I just, like, there's there's not much space. Like, I'm booked here to here and this, the theatre schedules are all booked. I just don't know what I'm going to fit you in. And I started crying and he just went, oh, look, back, like, just leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. And then a couple of hours later, he rings me back and says, what are you doing tonight? Can you be there at 6 p.m.? And I just said, I'll be there if you'll be there. And he said, I'll be there. And he literally took an extra how many hours of work, moved what he had to move, didn't go home to his own family to, yeah, do the surgery for me. So I'll mm -hmm. be forever grateful for that. So, yeah, went through a DNC and the recovery was fine. Um, mm -hmm. I was really lucky. It just was smooth. Um, over and done with took a week off work to just kind of recuperate and feel mm -hmm. um, everything I needed to feel and then I went back on my way <laughs> so that was mm -hmm. that first one um, we let ourselves have a cycle so waited until my period came back after that one um, and it did like about a month later pretty much on, on time so then we just kind of didn't, didn't prevent went jumped straight back into trying again um, and fell pregnant again straight away um, which was so lucky so 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 lucky um, it's not lost on me how lucky we are to find it relatively easy um, so I got to about six weeks and started bleeding um, and so we went up to the obstetrician again and he scanned me and he kind of said are you sure you're pregnant like it hasn't been that long since you've been here last time <laughs> like I wasn't expecting to see you guys yet and I said, I'm sure, I, like I went, I've got like five pee sticks and they're all lit up and I had bloods taken, like it's legitimate. Um, but there was just nothing in there for the scan, like not even, not even like a sack. It was just, it was just empty. Like, wow, that is so yeah, very strange. And so he said to me, look, it's probably a chemical pregnancy and chemical pregnancies are when... Um, egg meets sperm and there is an embryo that starts to develop but it either just doesn't implant or it implants but then dies away shortly after from the research I've read 
that it usually says that they tend to happen before five weeks. So they're those really, really early miscarriages that often a lot of women might not even realise that they're having. Um, but for some reason, mine held on until about six weeks. I didn't... Yeah, I think it was six weeks on the dot I was meant to be when on that day that I bled and went and got my bloods and um, taken to see what was happening. And so... Um, yeah, you just have bloods taken and they check the HCG again and it had gone all the way back down to like an eight or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was like, yeah, that's what's happening. You're having a chemical and so there's no baby there. So sorry about that. <laughs> and so, was yeah. Was there any grief around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I probably felt more upset about the chemical than I did about the missed miscarriage um, wow. I just put so much pressure on the second one you know like mm. you hear the stats like the one in four but you don't think it's going to happen to twice and not twice in a row like I mm. honestly did not think we would be that unlucky I was, like and people even tell you even the obstetrician told me like they research and studies show that after miscarriages those first sort of three months after afterwards are linked with better outcomes I didn't take any time off of work for the second one though it was very much like oh well keep going I wonder if that impacted the process as well then emotionally yeah potentially like I remember I remember one of the doctors said to me like when we kind of figured out it was a chemical kind of just like oh well that's a good thing because like you know you don't really need to be as upset because there's never anything there to lose. And I was like, Oh dear. Like, I know what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Isn't it the famous at least? Um, yeah. But like, you don't get it. Like once you pee on that stick and you see the two pink lines, you are a mother, you are connected. You are thinking about everything that baby could be. And I, had absolutely started doing that and I'd started going it's gonna be fine because I'm not gonna lose two babies in a row and then when I did I was absolutely devastated so that comment really hurt but I kind of went with that I didn't take any time off work I just went it was around about this time last year actually exactly um I was doing my student free days with work before we went back to actual like classes and I just went to work the next week there was no time off for it I fogged it off I was like oh well there wasn't anything there whatever keep going and so yeah um I think that's definitely contributed to how the last couple of months have been as well because I just really really was terrified of something going wrong a third time well then this third time was baby Liam yes can you walk me through the experience with Liam <laughs> <laughs> where do I even begin so like obviously off of the back of that we started trying again pretty much straight away. I think we took a month off because with um, the um, other miscarriages, when I had my bloods taken, it showed that I was had low um, rubella immunity. So I did that whole, like, measles, mumps, rubella immunisation mm -hmm. again, um, which is a waste of time in the end because with Liam's pregnancy, I was still low immunity. So I'm just not getting that jab anymore. They can get lost. But <laughs> you have to take 28 days off. You can't be pregnant after for 28 days after that live virus. So we took a month off and then we started going again. And I just 
I was just terrified of like having to make a difficult decision off the back of two lost pregnancies. Like it just, it heightened the fear tenfold. Um, but you keep going because there's nothing else that you can do about it. Um, I keep forgetting about this actually too, but I think I potentially had um, another chemical in around April. Um, I took some pregnancy tests a little bit before my period was due because I was having some spotting and it I seemed a little bit off and I got very clear positives, about two or three of them. Um, but then my period came and they faded before anything happened. So I was just like, oh, well, that's what's happened. Had a cry about it, moved on again. So like, wow. yeah, it built up um, a lot. And then finally, yeah, July, I found out that I was pregnant again. And so you do that checking every time you wipe, like analyzing every niggle um early pregnancy with Liam I had a lot of cramping and a lot of like discomfort that I'd never felt before so I was like immediately freaking out and you google all the things like ectopic and whatever else it could be um but no there was no problem no issue um who knows why my body was doing that it just did mm. um and I was almost in a way a bit detached because we didn't do things in the same usual like um, structured way we normally would. I went to the doctor to say, I think I'm pregnant, need to do my, you know, blood tests and stuff. And I saw someone that wasn't my usual GP. And I remember this guy said, would you mind doing a pregnancy test for me here? Like, you know, give me some urine. And I was like, yeah, for sure. And so I did one and he like brought it back into the room. And like, as soon as the like, liquid had gone across the test and it started shop. It was like, oh, yep, that's positive, chucked it in the bin. And he gave me the blood work forms, but there was nothing on there for the beta HCG. And I was like, do we not need to test, like, the HCG levels? And he was like, you got a positive test, you're pregnant, there's no need for it. And I was like, I kind of wanted to, like, argue, but then in that moment I was like, you know what? Every single time I get that result... All I ever do is freak out about it. All it ever does is increase the anxiety. And like, what's knowing the level's going to do anyway, it'll be fine. So I just I just went with it. I actually went like, take this as an excuse to just try and stress less. So I never found out where the levels sat or anything like that. I was just cruising along. And maybe it was also a little bit of a, like, a way to remove myself a little bit, like a protection mm -hmm. thing, I think. And so we just kind of wandered through. My obstetrician um, rang me and said, um, when you got my referral, like, you'll be freaking out. Um, let's not wait until the usual nine or ten week mark for a um, booking appointment. Come see me pretty early. Um, I'll do a dating scan for you. We'll look together. We'll make sure it's all okay. And so we went in rather early and had an informal dating scan with him at about six or seven weeks. Um and there was bub there, there was heartbeat. Um, the dates were off a bit and that freaked me out, um, as you can imagine. But like, he just reassured me and said, like, all you can do is keep waiting. It should be fine, yada, yada. Um, and so, yeah, the waiting until 10 weeks for the nip to begin again. Um, it's an awful period of time. Um, I have a pretty rough first trimester as do so many women. Um, not an HG pregnancy at any means, but like definitely a vomiting on the daily. Um, very tired um, while working full time and trying to be a mum. 
Mm. Um, and I found I also got like a bit of a like a a bit of a depression going for a couple of weeks in that first trimester as well with just the, the waiting and the tiredness and it just feels so crap it's like I want this so badly and I shouldn't be whinging but geez every part of it feels awful mm. um, so we got through that and then I got to around about 10 weeks um, we went and had our official booking in appointment with the OB and everything still looked wonderful we were all really happy measuring about nine and five looks great booked in to go have my nipped and literally like two days after I went to that first appointment um, <laughs> I started bleeding again and we freaked out of course uh, it turns out in hindsight that I had a subchronic hematoma so I was bleeding Ooh. pretty much from about 10 weeks until Liam was born it never went away wow. yeah um, so that was added also <laughs> Um, but yeah, we got the NIP results back and, um, yeah, the obstetrician rang me and said, look, everything's low risk, but you've got a boy. And so we all kind of just went, righto. Okay. Like work mode. What do we do next? Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, the plan always is if it's a girl, you leave it. Like I said with Ella, move on. Not a problem. Um, boys are refer us for the CVS testing. And so um, we were booked in at 12 weeks to go for our CVS testing. Um, We got to the testing over in Brisbane. We were referred to um, maternal fetal medicine in um, Brisbane. And we got there at 12 weeks on the dot, I think, and they couldn't get a sample. Um, Just for people who who don't know what a CVS is, it's a procedure where they use ultrasound guidance and pass a needle in through your abdomen into um, the placenta and they withdraw liquid and cells from the placenta to send off for testing. Um, You can also have them done vaginally as well, uh, but it just depends on your doctor and what they're most skilled in. I did ask the question at the time because my mum always had her CVSs done vaginally back 30 years ago and she was like, oh, it's just like a pap smear. And so then I had to go and have this big needle through my tummy. And I was like, it is not just like a pap smear. What are you talking about? And so I asked them. And apparently, it's there's no better way one or the other. It's just what your doctor prefers to do. So anyway, we did that. Um, and they said to me, look, we can't get a sample. The placenta is too far down. It also depends on whether it is like anterior or posterior placenta. So... Interior is the one at the front, isn't it? I think that's what happened with Ella. Mm-hmm. makes it hard to feel kicks and stuff. So they want one of those for CVS because it's easier to access. A posterior placenta that's too high, too low, too close down to your cervix or anything makes it really difficult to access. And so, of course, we couldn't get to it. Um, and I was just a wreck. I was like, oh, my God. Like, Because I know that time is of the essence here. The longer you leave testing the smaller your options become for what you're going to do if things need, you know, management. So, you know, I was just beside myself and they said, look, what you can do is you can come back in a week. A lot can change in a week. Um, You know, go away and come back to us. So we rebooked for maybe eight days later. So by the time we got back, we were about 13 and two maybe days. Um, And... 
we got there and everything had moved absolutely like grown heaps he'd grown heaps placenta had grown heaps shifted around a bit and then they were like this is fantastic we can get a sample it's going to be fine we can do it today um something else to note is that like in that wait period we went and had our 12-week nucleotranslucency scan and the combined first trimester screening and they found what's called an omphalocele um so it's essentially where um intestinal um organs herniate outside of the belly button into the um umbilical cord and they can be really severe or they can be right quite small um Liam's was quite small they thought it was just a, like his bowel had started to develop in his umbilical cord rather than his belly and um, usually if they aren't linked with anything else being a problem and they're relatively small they can be fixed at birth um, you know prognosis for that is pretty good so I really just didn't worry about it I went oh, just add it to the list cross that bridge when we come to it um, but it was there and so they found that as well got the sample and sent us off on our way um, and yeah, results took two weeks, two weeks to the day to come back. Um, and yeah, when she rang me, the genetic counsellor, um, I'll never forget it. She just kind of said, you know, um, we've got your results. Do you want them right now? Such a silly question. Would you like to have them? But I suppose she asked that question just in case someone's like in a bad situation to hear news. You could be, I don't yeah. know on a bus or at work or something yes and I was like no 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 let us know and she was like look I'm sorry I don't have good news today um and we just immediately knew what that meant um so she said um you know the baby is affected by BFLS that has come back um but then she said that's not all um he also has an entirely random but really significant deletion on his ninth chromosome um, which we can't really tell you the exact you know specific diagnosis of but we know that there's a lot of important information stored in those you know particular genes on that part of the chromosome and it's not going to be good were you given options in that moment not in that moment um it's strange because like because we've known about the bfls for so long like my husband and I had always discussed what we want would want um, if we were faced with you know a affected baby, and we'd always decided that we would terminate. We, you know, like my pe my parents did, but like that's not to say that we have to. But we had very mm -hmm. similar views in our reasonings for why, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little while. But like, um, all our healthcare professionals knew that, like. I, it was never sort of like a they had to counsel us further on what would happen and what the options were I've already been told the options multiple times since I was whatever age probably since Byron and I went for our first like family planning genetic counseling back in mm -hmm. like 2016 we would have been like 24 or 25 and that was then that someone said this is what would happen you have to do it by this date or you might need to you know this or the other like you have to um, surgery or you'd have to deliver and yada 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 so um there wasn't any options in that moment like in that moment she kind of said to me like obviously I started to like lose my shit a bit and like I started to cry and she was like you know have you spoken to your obstetrician 
and I said, yeah, yeah, I had an appointment yesterday and we were talking about the, like, what if plan. Um, we've got a bit of an idea of what we're going to do. And so she said, yep, all right, that's really good. What I'll do is I'll call his rooms. I'll send through these reports immediately and you guys can start doing what you need to do. And I just kind of went, yep, thanks. And we just hung up the phone. Like she, we didn't have any more conversation in that moment because I just, as you can imagine, just like, ah, like you only see in movies where people just kind of like double over in pain. Like it was like that. I just, um, yeah, I just remember kind of sitting on the side of my bed and just bending over and just like, yeah, crying. Like I've never cried. So my husband actually was the one that jumped into work mode and he like rang her back to get the actual information. Cause like, even though she'd said it to me, like it was gonna go in one ear and out the other. All I could say to him was just no, no like like that so he's like how about I ring and find out the details so he did he rang her got the details um rang the obstetrician and started getting everything moving um we had pretty much already discussed our plans just in case beforehand so there wasn't a lot of like um there wasn't any discussion of a decision we'd already made it um, it was more just like, okay, so how are we going to make this happen? Which is an awful feeling because that period of time, as so many TFMR mums talk about, of like limbo in between where you find out that your baby is sick and when your baby actually dies is just the most strange, like unearthly place to be, I suppose. Um, yeah. So there wasn't any yeah. direct options given in that time. Um, we already kind of had them. Just thinking about what you said just then, being in limbo. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> because that makes a lot of sense to me with the sort of feelings about your baby or your pregnancy or the experience in itself complex because it's like... You know, you see pregnant women holding the belly, rubbing the belly, like, you know, trying to bond and feel connected. And, you know, it's all that sort of, that's what happens when you're pregnant, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. That's, that's what you're thinking about. That's what you're, but then to know that it's going to end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even have words really. Like I don't, I'm trying to, like I, I, I can sympathize with you about that because I imagine that being really confusing <laughs> yeah it is um yeah people like describe it as like a no choice choice like you mm. we knew what we wanted to do that was best for our family and best for our child but like no parent wants to have to do that like, yeah, if I had a choice, <laughs> I would choose to have my baby. Like, mm -hmm. I would choose for him to not be sick. I would choose for him to not have chromosome deletions. I would choose that he would be perfect. But that's just not the way it was going to be. And so, yeah, we literally had... We got the results on a Thursday. It was on our wedding anniversary, actually. <laughs> by the way. Mm. <laughs> so that was nice. Um, and we had a week 
before we actually okay. did anything. So, like, we... How far along were you? Mm. You know, I don't even know, like, specific days. I feel bad, okay. like, that you would, like, know specifically, but I kind of just let it. Yeah. Um, but around about 15 weeks when we got the news, mm. because... The CVS wasn't taken until like 13 plus 1, 13 plus 2, and it took two weeks to the day, like mm. exactly two weeks. So it would have been over 15 weeks. And he was wow. maybe 16 and 2 when he was born. Yeah. Um, the dates were always wishy-washy, though. Like by my dates, he should have – he was probably over 17 weeks, closer to 18 weeks by the time he was born. Um, but by his scans and stuff, he was always measuring lower. And in hindsight, I think that had to do with potentially the chromosomal abnormalities for sure. Mm. I'm curious to, I don't know, just you saying when he was born, can you elaborate? Um, well, I suppose that goes on to the next part of the story. Hey, how it actually kind of all went down. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so from when my parents... Um, made their decision to terminate babies. They, um, 30 plus years ago when CVSs were first, like, developed, you could have them from as early as nine weeks, which is crazy. She had hers around 11. And so for my parents, it was always around about 11 weeks that she would have the CVS. And then usually by around 12, 13 weeks, they'd know and they would have a DNC or a surgery to complete the termination. Um, and so my whole time knowing about it, I always thought that's what we would do. I would go to sleep and I would wake up and it would all be over. Um, I, after the missed miscarriage in 2021, I very much kind of like centered what it would be like around that experience. I was like, it'll be fine. I'll go to sleep. My doctor will look after me so beautifully like he did the last time. I, you know, I'll bleed for a couple of days and then I'll be literally back to normal. Like it's going to be going to be fine um so cool that's what we thought was going to happen um only problem is that what I didn't know and what no one had told me before is that surgical termination is more difficult in the second trimester it moves from a procedure that is a DNC a dilation and cuteridge it's probably not the right way to pronounce it to a dilation and evacuation where they actually, the baby is big enough that they have to use tools to pull them out. It's an awful procedure to think about. I always thought I would be offered that, right? And so our obstetrician also was like, um, he was never able to do it for us because Catholic Hospital, I'll get to that. Um, but the plan was always to refer me to a colleague of his in Brisbane and they do them relatively late term. But the absolute cutoff is usually around that 16-week mark. Um, oh. Nobody... Even for medical reasons? They will not do the surgery past that sort of 16-week mark, at least not here okay. in Queensland. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just can't. Uh, the reason why is just safety of the mother. Um, if you think about the fact that you've got a pregnancy that's nearly halfway through... Mm -hmm. um, and a baby that is like Liam was 19 centimeters already it weighed like over 100 grams so light but you know 
<laughs> a, a, a little person. Um, yeah. They've got to like, you know, artificially dilate you and use a lot of instruments to try and make that happen. And it just like the risk of um, like perforation of the uterus or damaging something. Um, and also I've been told since they don't really love to um, like the dilating of your of your cervix in that manner has been shown to potentially um cause issues if you want to try and have babies again as far as cervical incompetence and different bits and pieces so they really just don't like to do it beyond um at least here at least no i don't think so i don't think so i think it's purely medical and that makes sense to me it's actually quite a surgery um you know, like any further along and like you'd probably be safer just to do a C-section on people, I swear. Like it's not, right. it's very fiddly um, and they explain to me quite dangerous. So they just don't like other places in the world they do. I follow mm. a couple of different support groups on Facebook and I read about mums from the US going to straight up like abortion clinics out of their state and having yeah. this goddamn like procedure done at like 20 plus weeks. But because it's an abortion clinic, not a hospital, they're not getting pain relief. Yeah. It's just insane, horror, torturous insanity. Um, So, like, we are very lucky that here it's straight up medical, I think, and it's for what's best for mums. And so I don't know about other states in Australia, but at least here in Queensland, yeah, I was told 16 weeks is like the card off. No one's going to want to do it beyond that. So, all right. Um, but like we always kind of like that'll be fine we'll be able to get in there in time but then when we got the CVS got pushed back the week and you're already over 15 weeks by the time you get the results trying to get me somewhere where they could do it was very difficult and this is where we get bounced around the system a little bit so you need to go back home to your local hospital Okay. and I was like okay only problem is local hospital doesn't have the professionals skilled enough to do D&E at that stage. They don't offer a surgical termination beyond about 12 or 13 weeks. So there was no option given to us. By the time we got to that stage, the reality hit me that I was going to have to labour and birth this baby. Um, and it was never, ever something that had ever registered yeah. I always just thought I would have a DNC and it'd be done with, like, not a problem. It was always given as the last case scenario. Like, people would counsel me and be like, we've got to be, you know, on track and knowing the dates and get things done nice and quickly because if you let it go too long, well, then you'll have to have a labour. And I was like, oh, gosh, no, I don't want to have to do that. Like, everyone was always like, yeah, no, no, worst case scenario. We want to avoid that at all costs. And then that's exactly what happened. And the reason why that happened is because of catchments and bureaucracy and not being able to access the care that I actually wanted, being told what was going to be made available to me. Um, So, yeah, when I say when he was born, literally, that's what happened. Um, We ended up having to go through a labour and, like, induced labour and birth with him. So he was, um, yeah, birthed on the 8th of October at around 10.30 in the morning. So you vaginally birthed this baby yeah. at roughly 16, 17 weeks gestation. Yeah, that's it. How 
were you feeling at that time in the birth and after? Hmm. Um, it's so funny because it's like an out-of-body experience, to be honest. Right. Um, you just go into... Oh, I went into just kind of work mode, protection mode. I like I talk about that limbo period where we got the results on the Thursday and then a following like a whole week before it happened and like you know what's coming mm. but you kind of just I don't even remember how I felt I don't even I, I honestly recently have thought to myself like what did I even do with that week I stayed at mm. home it was the start of term so I stayed at home I didn't go to school because I thought I probably wouldn't be in the mind frame to deal with the kids I'd probably end up yelling at someone I don't think it really hit me until we were leaving the hospital afterwards. And then you kind of get home and just, what the heck just <laughs> just happened? So what happens with the baby? What happened to Liam? Uh, um, so there has to be a line somewhere, but this is where it just really sucks. Um, in that because he was under 20 weeks, he's not a registered birth or a registered death, obviously. Right. Um, they counted as like a, I don't know, say a late term miscarriage, perhaps second trimester miscarriage. Um, so what happens? I don't know the specifics to be honest. Um, they said to us that we weren't able to have him cremated because he was too small. There wouldn't be anything to keep, um, and that made sense to us. And so the midwife kind of said to us in the nicest way possible that what they usually do is they keep them at pathology. And apparently they have to stay at pathology for a certain amount of time um, just to give parents time to decide whether they want genetic testing or autopsies or anything done. Obviously, we didn't need that because we already knew what was happening. We'd already done the testing, so it was all good. Um, but, yeah, I, he was born on a Saturday morning, so the midwives didn't even know where to send him. Like, we, we saw him, so they took him away and cleaned him up and brought him back in this gorgeous little basket with like a little like angel blanket wrapped around him and all the rest and um we kept him for the day and just kind of like it's so weird I just kind of sat there and just talked to him and I ate my lunch mm. and I I don't know at the time I thought this is so weird like I'm sitting here with, <laughs> yeah doing this talking to my boy like he can hear me but I, I don't know it's weird you do it um and then when we were ready to leave we we just left him in his little basket in the room and we walked out and then I believe that yeah he would have gone to pathology one of the hardest things that I have to think about is what it felt like to walk away yeah and knowing Absolutely. that he probably went somewhere into a fridge and then, you know, I don't ever get to keep anything. But, I mean, we we took footprints and handprints and we have, like, the, mm. the blanket and stuff that he came in. So we got keepsakes. Um, but not like a parent who might have a baby a bit older and they might get, you know... Like, if, it, if, it's, if it's over 20 weeks and they're classified, mm. you have to register their birth at death and they're classified as stillborn, then you have to do the whole funeral thing. And I think that's where they really do do ashes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But prior to 20 weeks, they don't really... In my experience, they didn't offer it. So yeah. I would have loved so that. So was he born alive? 
no. Okay. And that is part of our... Um, that has to do with, like, the process that we took as well. But I don't think he would have survived labour even if... Um, yeah. Even Being if that we, young. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So, like, when we were referred... Um, like, uh, because our obstetrician works out of a Catholic hospital, he wasn't allowed to manage any of this or do any of it for us. And so we were referred to um, a private, like, specialist obstetrician. And he, he said to me when I got there, he's like, there's three ways that you can do this. He's like, you can do it surgically which we've been talking about, but it's probably getting a bit late for you guys. And he also said it's not a very, like, if you think about the baby, it's not a wonderful um, yeah. process. Um, then he was like, you can just induce labour straight up and baby will die during labour. The contractions yeah. will harm, cause harm to them and they will die. Or you could do, I hate the name of it, but it's called a feticide. Feticide. Yeah. Um, they... Similar. I get why you hate the name. <laughs> yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, very very clinical, isn't it? Like, it's just mm, saying yeah. what it is, but it sucks. Mm. Um, and so you, similar to the CVS or an amniocentesis where they put a big needle through, um, but they, they use an ultrasound to guide it. They put the needle all the way through and through your tummy and they inject the baby's heart with a medicine that stops their heart. And so mm -hmm. they die then. I, I get why I did it because he was like I think this is the most humane way of doing it in my opinion because he was like it's imagine you're going in for a surgery and you the anesthetist you know kind of puts in your cannula and puts you to sleep he's like that's what I imagine this would be like for the baby um fleeting moments of pain if any and then they just go to sleep um mm -hmm. and so we did that. They, the procedure takes like 10 minutes and then they, they leave you and they go out of the room for 10, 15, let you sit and do what you need to do. And then they actually come back in and re-scan you to make sure the heart hasn't restarted. Um, and then they confirm, you know, death and, and send you on your way. Um, so, yes, he did, was not born alive because we went through that sort of process. Okay. Yeah. How has this how has this experience impacted you emotionally and physically maybe? <laughs> well, I mean physically is the easy one. Um, like we had had that procedure done and then we um, you know were induced at hospital. So like having that procedure done doesn't necessarily induce labor. I mean, I don't know, perhaps you, your, your body might recognize that the baby is gone, but probably not. Um, so we still had to induce labour through normal means. So going into hospital and having the um, uh, prostaglandin pessaries put in and it, you know, puts you into labour. Um, so after that, the labour was very, very straightforward. At the end of the day, he's like barely 17 weeks gestation. He is small. Um, I laboured pretty quickly, to be honest. Um, having had a baby before too also helped. I think the medication... Uh, I only needed two doses before I started to go into labour on my own. Um, and once it got going, it happened very quickly. Um, so mm. not a lot of pain. I, you know, 
I used my TENS machine and I had some Panadol and Nurofen and I kind of wanted to labour like I would normally labour. Um, so we got through that and I didn't have anything other than like your normal postpartum bleeding. Um, that hung around for ages. It went just as long as a full-term baby would. Um, oh. I've led for like seven or eight weeks. Mm. Um, but nothing else. Like you hear about some mums um, where they start their milk comes in and all that sort of stuff. I don't know whether it was because I wasn't far enough along or one of the genetic counsellors said to me at one point, sometimes it doesn't happen with babies with quite severe um, mm abnormalities or chromosomal abnormalities because your body does kind of recognise that there's something wrong so it doesn't you know start the whole lactating process so I I'd never really kind of I never really got sore boobs or anything throughout the whole pregnancy so I wonder if that's a thing but who knows um, so really easy to recover from physically but like emotionally <laughs> I don't even know what to say like huge huge um I was leaving a comment on a, another mum's post last night on one of the like very many support pages um, for TFMR mums and she was saying how she just couldn't stop crying and it was the like the the worst most intense sadness that she's ever felt and I would say that that's exactly how it feels. Um, in the immediate weeks after I've never felt so sad about something in my entire life just this like really all-encompassing um inescapable just yeah sadness and then you get guilt of course mm. because I mean you chose this right you made it happen um and like all mums would feel that when they terminate for medical reasons but like in our case, in the case of people who terminate because of a genetic condition, you also have the added layer of, I caused this. Mm. Um, and I say that to my like friends and my partner and stuff, and they go, no, no, it wasn't your fault, it wasn't your fault. And I'm like, mm, shush. <laughs> it, like, it wasn't my fault, no. Fault kind of denotes that I did something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. did everything I should have done. But you cannot avoid the reality that I am the cause. It's just, it's genetics. It's mother nature. I, I put out the wrong egg that month. Like, it's just, it's just what happens. And there's never going to be anything that you can do or say that's going to make me feel less bad about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I've had my whole entire adult life to, to kind of reason with that and it wasn't a shock I can only imagine for people that don't know that they carry something and you find out as a result um, that would be intensified even more um, do you think that in your experience of this termination for medical reasons having Liam and deciding to have Liam in that way it's obviously a loss TFMR is a loss and I think there is this misconception because there is a level of choice, choice attached to it that it is sort of not considered a loss in that in the same way as maybe a miscarriage or a stillbirth or something like that yeah but 
there is this sort of layer of complexity for TFMR. Absolutely. When we compare it to other losses. Did you feel that? Um, I think I did in that, like, I have certainly found this experience ten times harder than my other losses. Wow. Um, and I'm not saying that there's any kind of hierarchy whatsoever, but I personally no. have found that those layers make this much, much more difficult. Um, you know, TFMR, I've heard it described as being like the taboo of baby loss because it like it opens up this discussion of pro-life versus you know choice versus you know abortion all the rest and just thank god i live where i do yeah because like the roe v wade and all the rest of the stuff over in the states my life would be astronomically impacted and I just can't, I read some of the stories of some of these women on Facebook and whatever, on you know, support groups that talk about the fact that they have to sit there and go through an unmedicated, like painful abortion at an abortion clinic. And there's just no support, nothing that is there to help them. Like, I just can't even imagine. So I am unbelievably grateful for the place that I live and the medical professionals that I have around me. Um... But, like, I hate the word abortion, like, Mm. (laughs) particularly as far as TFMR is concerned, because no mother wants to abort their baby. Like, abort, it feels like such, like, a, um, uh, how did it, what's the word? It's so final. It's so abrupt. Like, it's like you abort them and they're gone. (laughs) It can make women appear things like heartless. Correct. And to blame. Like you you don't care. And it's like that is the absolute opposite. And for the Mm. large majority of people that have abortions for any other reason, large majority of the time I would say that it's not that they're heartless and they don't care. Everybody I feel I truly believe that every mother who does use that sort of health care is only using it out of the love for their baby and wanting to do the best for themselves and everyone around them. So like it's just, it's a really crappy term. I do not like it. And um, lots and lots of people feel they can't talk about being a TFMR parent because of the fear of judgment. It's controversial. Yeah. Um, people are going to disagree. People are going to tell you you're a horrible person. Um, I struggle with it because, you know, I'm a teacher. I work with intellectually dis- disabled kids every day. Mm. Like, you know... Am I saying that they don't deserve to be here? It's absolutely not what I'm saying, but I am saying that I choose not to have to have that reality for my family. Um, And then that's an awful thing to think about too because I often just feel so bad that, like, why, you know, couldn't I have been a stronger mother? Like, why, why wasn't I willing to do whatever I had to do to look after him? But that's the thing with TFMR, mums and dads make the decision to deal with the pain so the kid doesn't have to. It's not about whether you want to have a disabled kid, it's about their quality of life and it's about what, yeah. what living would be like for them. And yeah, particularly for us knowing that the extra chromosomal stuff was going to result in a lot of like 
there was going to be a lot of surgeries. There was going to be a lot of pain. Mm. And to put a little boy who already wasn't going to be intellectually, you know, developed, I suppose, like, how was he going to understand what the hell was happening to him? How was he supposed to understand? How are you supposed to explain why you're in so much pain and why you need to be in and out of hospital and all the rest of it? It's just not. It's not. I, I choose no, um, and yeah. that's fine. But still, people will have their opinion, and so it's pretty intimidating to have to walk around with that all the time. And I think a lot of people feel that very, very intensely. And it causes you to invalidate your loss too, because you chose it. Yeah. So, like, do you, you know, like, you shouldn't be walking around being so sad and being so melodramatic about it. You chose this. It's like no one chooses it. No. Like I said before, it's a no choice choice. The choice is yeah. you let your kid live in pain or die shortly after birth in some cases for people or you, you know, choose to take care of things before they can know the difference. Because yeah. I know that Liam only ever felt warmth and, and love and knew no different. Um, yeah. And that's comforting if he had been born he would not have only known love and comfort he would have known pain and confusion I just think having this conversation with you at this particular time you know when Roe was reversed in the states and having Mm -hmm. many states in the states um, having no tolerance for termination at all and how that, that does impact Women. I love something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, and a lot of people thought that she was um, pro-life when she said this, but people have, like they do with powerful people, sometimes they hear what they want to hear, but she said something like, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but that, you know, essentially women's bodies aka termination should not be a political issue Mm. and so by talking about termination and having it in laws and all these things we make it obviously a political issue but she was just like it should not just not even be a conversation and you know um having choice slash sometimes the no choice choice uh yeah just should not be up for political debate no and you know and that creates a lot of stigma and hatred and divide and yeah it's just it's know, just a people... whole heap of extra stuff that that absolutely yeah, women don't need like it's yeah <laughs> it's and it's just infuriating that a large majority of people that you see making such a big song and dance about this are men and yeah. i'm just like <laughs> but like not all the time that's a generalization but mm, so like well yeah. it's men in power Correct, and, like, it kind of leads into the other thing I wanted to talk about, which was, like, the whole Catholic um, hospital or Celtic health care, because they do the same. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to have the straightforward support and care from my health provider who I know and trust. Because not yeah. because he believes any of that, not because he's not willing to help, but because they work out of a private Catholic healthcare facility 
Yeah, he's bound by policy. And they're bound yeah. by the um, Catholic Health Australia Code of Ethics. I did some research and I've literally been reading it. Um, and they talk about, like, there's specifically a point in here about where women might develop a life or health-threatening condition for themselves or where there might be, um, you know, genetic bits and pieces wrong with the baby and they just straight up say that it can't be done like it should not there should not be any referrals given to somewhere that leads to abortion you should not like give any advice that leads towards the abortion of the child there's even like a part here in it that talks about ectopic pregnancy and I just I had to read it like five times over because I was like what the hell are they talking about it says careful monitoring is required and ectopic pregnancies may safely resolve themselves in time will they Hmm. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that. However, a woman's life should never be endangered by inappropriate delay in treatment. When treatment is required, the pathological situation should be resolved quickly, though not by resort to any procedure or treatment that is abortifacient. Abortifacient, is that what you would say? In the death of the embryos being intended. Nor by any treatment that involves a surgical or chemical assault on the developing embryo. So basically, are they saying wait until it dies, like natural causes? Like that would be a preference. A preference to them, yes. So like even my OB told me that even if he gets women into his clinic that have a fatal diagnosis, baby is incompatible with life, it will die, still not allowed to do anything for them. Women are forced to, like, like, same thing as it shouldn't be a political issue, it shouldn't be a bloody religious issue. Like... Where does anybody (laughs) get off on, like, forcing their beliefs on other people just in everyday life, but then add to that that I'm going to force my religious beliefs on your healthcare? Like, it just, it's such a big, big argument because it once again goes back to the pro-life thing. We were never going to be able to have our surgical termination regardless, even if I could have it at the Catholic hospital because we were too far along. And I never asked my doctor what his level of skill was, but it just wasn't ever going to happen. So we can leave that to the side. But, like, the fact that women are being, like, the only other option is to go to your local public hospital, which is totally fine. You can get amazing care there, I'm sure, as well. But, like... You choose to go see a private obstetrician for continuity of care and you learn to trust that person. You feel comfortable with that person. And then people are being forced to, you know, enter this... In one of the worst times of their life. Yeah, lives. period of time in their life that is already yeah. so difficult. And I can't even yeah. have the people that I want around me. Um, and I'm made to feel like I'm doing something, like, so ethically and morally abhorrent that can't possibly help yeah. you like it just it just it's insane that in 2023 we're still having like just these it's all about power that there's still just politics and religion trying to tell women what they can and can't do with their bodies mm. um and it just infuriates me i was reading earlier so this is childrenbychoice.org.au so this is an australian research in termination, uh, mm. sorry, an Australian organisation in termination. 
and they actually say no contraception. So a lot of the issue around, uh, I, I find TFMR sort of gets pushed to the side when we talk about abortion. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, because that is almost too good of an argument to have it. <laughs> right like to have it in our laws and stuff oh yeah no one wants to think about like the the effects that you know poor you know babies that are you know born with half a heart or something might have on people like no 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 yeah that's right correct that'll ruin our argument so i was reading up about this and like a lot of the issues around abortion is the fact that women get unplanned pregnancies yes and they've specifically got stuff in here about that yeah, so then the woman is blamed then for becoming pregnant. Mind you, well, let's that? not talk about the men in that scenario, but this is this is sort of the narrative, right? So on the, I was reading on this website and I was like, oh, finally, like something with common sense. So they say no contraception is 100% effective and contraception can even fail when used correctly and Correct. consistently. It the World can. Health Organization estimates that even if all contraceptive users use contraception perfectly in every sexual encounter there would still be six million unintended pregnancies every year i found that very interesting indeed yes and i I just think it goes to show that regardless of the topic of abortion or termination we need to come back to I guess like I'm all about the humanistic approach, uh, you know, my backgrounds in psychology and things. So I'm constantly trying to think about how things impact human beings, um, physically, emotionally, mentally, all of that. And so when I, when we think about termination, it's not just about unplanned pregnancies. And now look, we have statistics to show us that, you know, it's not women's fault for falling pregnant, you know, well, you know, if that is the argument, then we just shouldn't be having sex, which is, humanly impossible i think sometimes so if we go from an evolutionary perspective (laughs) but yeah so i but yes i do find that tfmr is honestly pushed aside a lot of the time and i had a quick look at this website but not yet have i found anything about tfmr and it was an oh no there's nothing so this is what i'm finding interesting yeah, like their ethics here do have a section on prenatal and genetic counselling. So specifically at someone like us, um, and it pretty much says the same thing, that essentially what they should be doing is, yeah, teaching, counselling people about their cycles and when mm. they should just try not to have sex because if you know mm. you've got a genetic condition that it's irresponsible that you should be having sex at any particular time. I didn't even think about the fact that this would be a problem. And I wasn't with Ella. So we are, we've we only got one or... No, we've got two private hospitals um, in our okay. area. But one of them doesn't offer maternity. Yeah. So there's only one you can go... There's one right. particular private hospital or your public hospital. It wasn't about the hospital. It was about the, the model of care that it you It was wanted. about the model of care, yeah. What do you want people to understand most about not only your experience but loss and TFMR? I think TFMR, as we've said, is just such a complex and complicated um, situation to be in, but that it is baby loss. Um, It's just as Mm -hmm. devastating as losing a baby unexpectedly. Um, 
as if you you know had a stillbirth or something um i i think it's called time to talk tfmr um a podcast from the uk that talks specifically about this um topic uh they posted like a statistic um that comes from a a piece of research by what they say her name was professor caroline lafarge says that tfmr is three times more common than stillbirth and infant death combined and i would say that's uk data but if you think about the fact Mm -hmm. that the large majority of these probably do happen prior to 20 weeks like mine did they're not registered so we have no way of knowing the statistics of how many people have to go through this through this but like i would love people to know that it is very common and people who make this decision are not doing it because they want to um Mm. it's done out of the absolute most love that you could possibly have for your child and um i hope that if anybody hears this and is and is feeling like i did or is trying to um navigate their way through it that it can make you feel a little less alone because I know that looking out for other people's stories really helped me and I'm only three months in so it's going to be a lifetime to go of having to um, work through how this feels but being able to talk about it lightens it more and more each time Has this put you off having more children? No Yeah. but it certainly um it certainly makes you stop and think. Um, mm. it's, I'm struggling with that at the moment, to be honest, because I, like, more than anything, would love to be trying again. Um, I have the same, like, ugly feelings that lots of lost mums would understand when, like, you're just in this period of life where everyone around you is having babies. Um, I have lots of very close friends who are pregnant, um, and it just adds a layer it makes life and trying to move through it all very difficult um and I badly want to try again I badly want to like try and catch up but I also know that this is going to be really scary for us and I need to be in the right mind space and be okay in myself if I'm going to be able to deal with this again because regardless there's going to be a wait all over again there's going to be at least the wait till a nip test at least this at least the scans like anyone who's been pregnant after loss would know that it is it is not fun (laughs) so like it's it's going to be hard but it hasn't deterred me I definitely do want to try again I want Ella to have a sibling I think it's changed what we think our family will look like you know once upon a time we used to be like oh we'll have three kids that sounds great and then we had Ella and I think we kind of went oh maybe two (laughs) and like now that we're like had to go through this I think it's more like a definite sort of thing I don't know as I would put myself through all of this again um I think I think maybe a family of four will see us complete um IVF is an option for us as well and lots of people ask me about it all the time um but I honestly don't feel like going through that process actually makes our chances any better. Um, it would remove the BFL from the equation because obviously you can test embryos and just not implant ones that 
mm-hmm. that are affected, but like it doesn't stop pregnancy from being the same scary whirlwind that it always is. Well, Beck, I just want to say thank you so much for your vulnerability, your openness. This has been honestly, you know, a bit mind blowing for me. You're the first person I've spoken to that's gone through something like this, mm. and. I just think it is a really important conversation to be had and to be heard. So absolutely. thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share it because absolutely it is. And there are so many people that think they're alone and they are not. You are not alone. There's heaps of us here with you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode. Thank you.